0: Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church Podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we come before you in Jesus' name. We do thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for allowing us to come this morning and to listen to your word. We pray that as your word is spoken in our ears, that you would give us ears to hear. She would give us, Lord, eyes to see and, and hearts to believe. We pray, God, that as these verses come to life, Lord, in our lives, that the truth of laying down our life as you laid down your life would be brought before us. And that you would give us the courage And the hope of a greater future, the hope of something greater in the future to rely on God as we obey the command that you are giving this morning. Help me to decrease so that you may increase. Help me to become less so that you can become more. We glorify you in all that we do this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I do want to welcome you once again on this Lord's Day. This morning we are continuing our exposition of the Gospel of John. As we said last week, we are approaching the, the final week in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the final week is revealed for us in the final chapters of the Gospel of John. The following chapters are are filled with so much passion and filled with so much emotion That it's hard not to to feel the weight of every single word as we're reading through the rest of this chapter. The moment when Christ will lay down his life is approaching quickly. Once again, the setting. The setting is the Passover. The Passover is at hand or it's taking place. The Jewish historian Josephus, as I said last week, informs us that there is up to maybe three million people Gathering into Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover feast. Jesus is also coming, or Jesus also came to celebrate the Passover. This was always the practice of Jesus. Now think about that in the life of Jesus. He'd always practice the celebration of the Passover. From infancy, to childhood, to adolescence, to now as an adult. He is practicing the celebration of coming to worship along with his fellow brethren the salvation that God gave them when they were slaves in Egypt. Jesus is coming to worship with them. And year after year, he is, he's watching families that would travel from all over the place to celebrate freedom from oppression. They come with hope that one day they would truly be free from all of their oppressors, and that God would one day send a deliverer. One like Moses promised in Exodus chapter 18, that that would be a prophet that God would raise up. One that would speak God's word as Moses spoke God's word. And year after year, families are coming to celebrate this feast. And year after year, they are bringing with them a sacrificial lamb that represents a sacrifice for their entire family to have their sins atoned for. And Christ is watching year after year these families with hope of a future, bring a lamb that they hope will atone for their sins for that year. But it'll just be for that year. The next year, Christ will see that same family go up again with another lamb, hoping that their sins would once again be atoned for. Year after year, for 33 years. And this year, Jesus came to celebrate the Passover. Only then, rather than bringing a lamb himself, Jesus Christ would be that lamb who would be offered up once and for all to take away all of the sin of all of the world, once and for all. Because of this raising of Lazarus, a man who had been dead four days, the popularity of Jesus is at an all-time high. News about him spread that there is a buzz in the air. There's a buzz in the multitude concerning or surrounding Jesus. What is the buzz? Could this be the deliverer that we've been waiting for? Could this be the prophet that Moses spoke of? Could our time of oppression be over? And could this be the Messiah? The religious leaders are in panic mode. They had to stop this crowd from exalting Jesus, from seeing Jesus in this light. If Jesus got too much attention, the crowd may, may start a rebellion. They may start an uprising, and attempt to overthrow their Roman oppressors. Because of their newfound confidence in the man who has power over the grave. If this happens, the Romans will will send in their legions of soldiers to crush any kind of Jewish uprising, to ultimately crush the Jewish nation, and in doing so, crush the religious leader's power and authority over that Jewish nation. So Jesus must be stopped. This man, Jesus, is too much of a risk. He's too much of a risk for the peace of Israel. So in order to save their position and apparently to save the lives of the people of Israel, the Jewish religious leaders decide that Jesus must die. But he's not the only one who is gaining popularity. The Bible tells us in John chapter 12, verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only to him or not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. The religious leaders decided that it was not enough to destroy Jesus. They wanted to destroy any evidence that pointed to the power of Jesus or any evidence that pointed to the existence of Jesus. They wanted to wipe Jesus off of the face of the map and anything that was associated with him. So while they're making their plans to kill Jesus, Jesus is about to do something that is very much out of the norm. It's it's very much out of his character, especially during the Passover, he is going to put himself on display. He is going to make a spectacle of himself. How? While the crowd is looking for this man who raised a man from the dead, anticipating his arrival to the feast, Jesus decides to make a special entrance into this crowd. He takes a donkey's colt. A a donkey's child, as it were, and rides into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, pointing to himself as a humble king. The crowd, what do they do in response? They hail him as the king of Israel. They shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or as I mentioned last time, Hosanna meaning, help, save us now. They were looking to Christ As their king, and I did not mention this last time, but the crowd was not completely wrong in who they believed Jesus to be. They believed that he was the Messiah. We know he was the Messiah. But what they believed that Jesus was going to do was completely different than what we know Jesus came to do. And Jesus was fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. As a matter of fact... They were understanding it better than you and I were understanding it. When they saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, here's what they heard or here's what they thought. I'm going to read it to you in Zechariah 9, nine. I didn't do it this last week. But listen, you're a part of the crowd. You see this Jesus whom there is a great buzz surrounding and you see him riding into Jerusalem. Here's what you would have thought at that specific time. Zechariah nine. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, which is you. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Listen now. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. You and I stop there. But here's also what they believed. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. The war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall, he, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So we are getting just one portion of what they would have completely thought. What are they thinking? Peace to the nations. There will no longer be war. This Messiah has come to establish peace. There is no more oppression. As they are seeing Christ, they are right to believe that He is the one, but they were wrong to believe that what He was going to do was what He was going to do at that moment. And while the religious leaders were planning more likely to kill Jesus after the Passover, this act on the part of Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, accelerated their plans. Jesus must die immediately. People were coming. Coming to Jesus, coming to Lazarus. Lazarus was pointing to Jesus. The people that went to Lazarus were then going to other people and then pointing to Jesus. This this great deal of evangelism is happening at this time. And the religious leaders are going out of their minds. It may be that this was merely a foreshadow. Of the work that Christ was going to accomplish. Meaning drawing people from every tribe and nation and tongue to himself. But in the verses that we're going to see ahead. We're going to see something a lot different than what Christ. Or what the people are expecting concerning. What he was going to do. In these six verses we are going to see the hour. Number one. We are going to see death. And harvest. And number three. We are going to see your call. To die and follow Christ. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse number 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. And. In Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, 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 I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life, In this world, will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of God. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. You may be seated this morning. Listen intently this morning. As the crowds gather, people are gathering to see Jesus. And it is almost as if just as the religious leaders say, look, the whole world is coming after Jesus. Verse 20 may be an example of what they meant, because right on cue, when the religious leaders say the world, the whole world is coming after Jesus. The Bible mentions then some Greeks come and their desire is to see Jesus. Verse 20. Now, among those who sent up now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These Greeks were most likely proselytes. If you've never heard the word proselyte before, the word proselyte simply means a convert. So these Greeks were not necessarily raised as Jews or to practice Judaism, but rather they were converts to Judaism. They were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Being Greek did not necessarily mean, though, that they're from Greece. Rather, they were Gentiles, like you and I, non-Jews, people who came from the Greek-speaking world. And at that time, Greek was the most common language, as English is today. These Greeks were God-fearing people, as indicated by the fact that they came to worship at the feast. Gentiles, non-Jews were not allowed entrance into the inner courts of the temple where most of the worship took place. They were allowed at the outer courts of the temple. And should they break the violation or break the law of going into the inner courts of the temple, they would be put to death. So here we have a group who's come to worship at the Passover. And as they enter into the city for the purpose of Passover, celebrating the Passover, they become engrossed in this buzz that is surrounding the Lord Jesus. Now, if you can imagine how quickly news travels here in Bakersfield. Can you imagine? Three million people gathering into a city the size of Bakersfield, and there is one specific person that the news is most focused on. The man who raised a man dead for days. Now, as a side note, these Greeks... Also, not as a side note, but these Greeks were also getting information about Jesus. Now, here's the side note. We must not neglect. Now, if you're taking notes, take note on this. You must not neglect what the other Gospels tell us about what went on when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. So as far as what we know in John, Jesus goes into Jerusalem Jerusalem on a donkey's colt and there is a great celebration. Mark tells us that when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it was already late in the day. So he goes out of the city after this great celebration and spends the night in Bethany. The next day, Mark tells us that Jesus enters into Jerusalem again and he goes straight to the temple. And when he goes into the temple, he sees money changers who are turning the house of God into a market, much like the church right down the street. Mark eleven fifteen 15 tells us that he entered into the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He turned over the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Listen to what else. He would not even allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, the crowd that's gathering to say, what is this madman doing? He says to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. So, yes, we see a triumphal entry. We also see Jesus enraged by the people turning his father's house into a market. So not only was news spreading about the man who raised Lazarus from the dead, but there are also news spreading about this man who just went crazy in the temple. All the more reason for people of Jerusalem and Greeks coming from other nations, other lands. To be intrigued by this man, Jesus, who is this guy? The Greeks were no different again. They're interested in finding out more information about Jesus. Verse two or verse twenty one. So the these these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Why mention that? We'll talk about that in a moment and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, it's not obvious. It's not clear why they bring the request to Philip. How many disciples were there? Twelve, And there were probably more people gathering around Jesus claiming to be one of his disciples, but they go specifically to Philip. Why? These Greeks, they're requesting a meeting with Jesus, or they're actually requesting seeing Jesus. Now, everyone can see Jesus. He's visible to everyone, but they're requesting something more. They want a meeting with Jesus. They want to meet with him. They want to speak with him. But why is not clear. Like Zacchaeus in John 3, they may have wanted to seek him out of curiosity. Like the wise men from the east, they may have surmised that this was the king of the Jews, the promised king. Whatever the reason is, we don't know. But what we do know is that they approach Philip. Now again, why Philip? And why mention that Philip is from Bethsaida? Again, we don't know specifically why, but here's what we do know. Philip is the only of all of the disciples who had a Greek name. Philip was also from Bethsaida, as was Andrew and Peter. And Besseda was closest to the place where most Greeks lived, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So it may have been that these Greeks automatically identified with someone who has a Greek name and someone who lives close within the vicinity of them. So they felt most comfortable coming to him, not knowing that the other disciples would be as welcoming to non-Jews. That's what we can surmise, or at least guess, about that verse. Philip, what does he do? He went to Andrew. Another townsman of his, another person who would also be welcoming, maybe, to Greeks. And what does Andrew do? Andrew takes Philip and says, let's go talk to Jesus. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this. Why do they ask Jesus for permission? As we approach the next four verses, we don't know whether or not Jesus granted permission for the Greeks to, be, to have court with the Greeks. We don't know that. We don't know if Jesus allows them Or denies them from coming to speak to him. But what we do know is what we want to focus on. What we do know is when the request of the Greeks comes to see Jesus, Jesus begins to speak. And what he says brings some kind of clarity to his disciples concerning the moment that they found themselves in. Keep that in mind. So let's deal with number one. Number one, the hour. Verse 23. Now, get the picture. These Greeks are coming to Jesus, they w- or to his disciples. They want to see Jesus. And here's his response to, hey, there's some Greeks who want to see you. Jesus responded, or the answer, answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What? Why would you say that? No one asked you about your time of glorification. Greeks want to see you. Why would Jesus give this response when the request of Greeks comes to him? We might think that Jesus would say, yes, I would think, let them come, the more the merrier. Yes, let them come and share with with you the wonders of the kingdom. Or, of course, the kingdom of God is for all those who have been given ears and eyes to see, right? That's not what he says. Instead, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why? You have to ask these questions when you're studying God's Word. Why? We don't know. But what we must focus on is what we do know. And then draw conclusions from what God has given us. We must not forget that this passage is not far removed from what had happened the previous day. Let's go back one day. John twelve twelve. The large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That's what happened the day before. As Jesus rides in, they believe that he was slash is the one that they were waiting for. But what did they believe about him? What did the crowds believe about him? What did they expect from him? Well, we talked about last week, they expected a king like that of David who would rule over all of Israel and destroy anyone who dared to oppose the people of God. That's what's in their minds. They expected peace and prosperity here on earth and that this man, Jesus, would be the one who would be their ruler. But they were not only the ones. The crowd was not the only ones who were confused about what Jesus came to do. There was another group of people that also were confused about what all of this meant. His disciples. His disciples were also confused about the purpose and the mission of Christ. Although they did not, although Jesus taught constantly about his purpose and about his mission, was to come to lay down his life for the world, his disciples' understanding of his mission was veiled. Verse 16 tells us that his disciples did not understand these things at first. Remember that? But when Jesus was glorified, after it was all done, then they remembered that these things that had been written about him had been written about him and done to him. So these Greeks come to Jesus, and we can assume that they have fallen into the assumptions of the crowd that are shouting Hosanna and have fallen into that they believe Jesus is the king and that they also expect the same thing that the crowd is expecting from him. Don't for a moment think that the disciples were not as as human as you and I. And don't for a moment think that they did not have the same assumptions as the rest of the human crowd around them. Now, what does all this have to do with Jesus saying the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? Because as the Greeks come, Jesus, who knows all men, John 2, 2, 24, also knows the hearts of another group of people who may be overly excited And ultimately, confused about what the Greeks coming to Jesus might mean. His disciples. Meaning this. J.C. Ryle, I love what he says on this. Our Lord saw the state of mind which his followers were. He saw them excited by his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the desire of strangers like the Greeks to see their master. He saw that they were secretly, secretly expecting a glorious kingdom. To be immediately set up, in which they would have had, listen, chief places, power, and authority. He proceeds to rectify their conceptions, squash them, and to remind them of what he had repeatedly told them. He must die. Imagine you being one of the twelve disciples. You are specifically chosen by Christ to be one of the twelve that he would train. You would be one of the intimate companions with Christ, and you would walk with him every single day. You would hear his words every day. You would be given a specific responsibility. You would have access to him every day, anytime you wanted him. Listen now. And now, there is a countless multitude seeking just a piece of what you've been walking with, Every single day for the past three and a half years. How would you feel if they're seeking the guide that you know like a brother? You would feel some kind of ownership. You would feel some kind of sense of pride that you've known him before everyone. It's almost like when a musician gets really popular. And you've been listening to that musician for the past four years. And it almost feels like I've known him before you guys have all known him. As if he knows you just as much as you know him. I would feel a sense of pride. That I am his intimate companion. That he calls me disciple. He's even given me a nickname. I'm the rock. Right? I'm a son of thunder. Right? Don't think for a moment, again, that these men were not as human as you and I. They were not chosen because of their greatness. They were chosen specifically because there was nothing great about them. Christ then knows their hearts. He knows the hearts of all men. He knows your heart, my heart. He knew their heart better than their own mother knew their heart. So in order to bring them back to earth, as it were, Christ makes this dramatic statement. You are excited about what's going on. You're excited about Greeks coming. You think something spectacular is going to happen. Let me tell you what that is. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, they may have been thinking, exactly. That's what we want. Glorification. Let's have you be exalted. We'll be your princes. But that's not what he meant. They thought what Christ meant was completely different than what Christ meant. What Christ meant and what they thought were two completely different things, right? Christ used one of his favorite titles, the Son of Man. He's used it 80 times in the New Testament. Referring back to the book of Daniel, the one who comes, the Son of Man who comes with power and authority and glory. But at this moment, Christ is speaking about an hour In which glory will be attained, listen, through death. His time in the world was about to end. He was about to finish the work that he came to do and then be, and then ascend to the Father. The hour is much different than the hour that they were expecting. They were expecting an hour when he would sit on a throne. Christ was pointing them to an hour when he would hang on a cross. They were expecting the overthrowing of earthly oppressors. Christ was coming to destroy Satan and the oppressive power of sin. Glorified means to be crucified. Because it is only through crucifixion that Christ will receive any glorification. Hebrews twelve twelve. looking unto Jesus the author or the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I would be remiss to say that if I didn't say that the coming of the Greeks also seems to be a sign that the hour has come. It's now arrived. The Gentiles are even coming to believe, fulfilling the promise, not only in Isaiah, which you should read back on, but also going even back to the promise of Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. And now the nations are coming. They had always been a part of God's plan. This is not something new. It's, they've always been a part. We have always been a part of God's plan. And it is now taking place. Do you feel that? That their coming is a sign of your coming. And it's a sign of Christ saying, and now I must go. Number two, the harvest from death. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The passage is, is meant for those who are confused. So that they could clearly understand the purpose of Christ's coming. And in order to illustrate the purpose of his coming, the Lord speaks of about a fact of nature. And that is this. The fact that fruit comes from a seed. And that seed, if it is going to produce any kind of fruit, must die. In order for there to be fruit, the seed must be put into the ground. And when it goes into the ground, it must rot. It must decay. It must then, and it and must die, and then it will germinate and to begin and begin to produce because of the, the, the burying and the dying fruit. But the fruit will not come without death. Christ is saying there will be no fruit without death. If we refuse to bury the seed, if we cherish the seed and keep it hidden, we will never reap the harvest that the seed has the ability to produce. If we keep it locked away, if we desire to protect the seed and say, I I will never let anybody touch this seed. Then the world who is hungry will starve and you will die as well with your seed. That did not do what it was created to do. Amen. Produce fruit. Yeah. Amen. Who is the seed? Who is the grain of wheat that Christ speaks of? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come to the earth and he has come to die. So without the sacrificial death of Christ, our lives would be in jeopardy of the wrath of God. But because Christ died and because Christ rose... He has now produced a harvest of sons and daughters that are too numerous to count, namely you and I. The Bible says that they are so numerous that that you can't even count them. They are as numerous as the stars in the sky or as the grains of sand in the desert. But all of those sons and daughters came about through one death, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and through one life. The life that came about through his death, his life. Yeah, yeah. He is the first fruits of all of us yeah. to wish that he would not die yeah. as his disciples did and will and will do. It was Peter who says, you're not going to die. Jesus says, you don't understand. I must die because if I don't, then you will die. To wish that Christ would not die is as foolish as keeping a seed, an apple seed locked away in a safe, refusing to plant it while the world starves. Christ is saying that he is that seed of wheat that comes to earth, dies and will be buried. And through that death and because of that death, that hour, you and I are saved. Listen now. But Christ does not stop there. Because Christ is not the only one, or Christ, listen, Christ is the only one who could die in our place and thus become our substitute. But listen, but Christ is not the only one who must die. Christ is the only one who could come and be our substitute. Christ is the only one that could come and atone for our sins. It is only Christ and Christ alone that our faith is placed in But Christ is not the only one who must die. Number three. He points to himself and his hour, then he points to you. Whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever keeps or hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, don't forget the picture, the crowd, the Greeks, and even his his disciples are longing for a good life. Naturally. Let me just say this real quick. Naturally. Who does not long for a good life? Who does not long for health? Who does not long for wealth? You all, you all, you all, you all do. We all do, huh? Can you blame them? No, we can't blame them. Who doesn't want to be healthy and wealthy? And listen, who doesn't want to live a life of comfort and ease? So can you blame the crowd as they're shouting Hosanna, thinking peace has now come? Who does not want to live without peace? So I don't blame them. But Christ is pointing them toward something greater. And Christ, listen, does not indulge them in their fantasies. Christ does not encourage them to hold on to what they're hoping for and seeking with all their hearts in this life. Rather, Christ continues the theme of death. And Christ says that he has come to die. And in coming, listen to that, listen, he did not think that heaven and all of the glory therein was something that he had to to hold on to. As if he was going to somehow lose it. And when he came to earth, he did not clutch onto earth, holding both hands with it. Unwilling to let it go. Rather, he was willing to let his life go. Not loving it so much that he would not be willing to lay it down. For he knew that the great harvest would result as a result of him laying down his life. He knew that if he let go of his life, then more life would be produced. He knew that if he held on to it, then he would lose all of you and more. And so it is for his followers. He bids you in Matthew 10, 39. Mark 16, 25. Mark 8, 35. Luke 9, 24. Luke 16, 33. And right here in John 12, 25. Come. Follow Christ yes. and die. Amen. Rather than those whose motto is love your lives or love yourself. Christ commands you to hate yourself. He commands you to hate your life. To lose your life. To hate your life. To release the desires to cling on to this world. Notice it's not Advice. It's a command. Christ does not advise you, hate your life. Christ commands you, hate your life. Christ does not advise you to follow him. Christ commands you to follow him. We've heard this statement before. Hate your life. And you may be wondering, how is that accomplished? As I was studying through the scriptures, these scriptures, I began to ask myself, how do I hate my life? I have a beautiful wife that I love, a beautiful son that I adore, a beautiful mother that I that is more to me than I can ever say. Brothers and sister who I love and then a church that I adore and thank God for. I love my life. And you may be saying the same thing, some of you. How do I hate something that is perceived as a blessing from God to me? And Calvin, John Calvin, gives us some, some helpful insight into how this is accomplished. Listen to Calvin. He says the person who is under the influence of immoderate desire, meaning a desire for this world that is without moderation, a desire for this world that is without measure, that person and that life cannot leave this world. Without coercion and is said to love their life. Meaning this, they hold so dearly onto this world. They they almost love this world too much. That they love it too much, they can't let it go. Friends, do you realize you could love your job too much? Friends, do you realize that you could love your wife and your son and your family? too much. So much so that you're not willing to let them go. That's when you know you love them too much. But the person who despises this life and advances courageously to death is said, to hate their life, Calvin says. Meaning this, that I love you. But when God calls me home, it's time for me to go. That I adore you, my son, Nazareth. I adore you, my wife, Martina. I adore you, my mother, Mary. I adore you, Reformation Bible Church. But when God calls me home, I'm gone. Why? Because I am merely a guest here. I am a sojourner who is traveling to another world that's not here. And though I love the things that God has blessed me with and blessed you with in this world, they are but temporal and they will last but for a moment. But when you begin to hold on to things as if I'm going to take this with me, you are loving this world a little bit too much. Calvin says not that we should hate life completely, for it is rightfully thought of as one of God's highest blessings, life. But believers should lay it down cheerfully. When it hinders, listen, their access to Christ. Lay it down. And lay it down cheerfully. And lay it down quickly. When it hinders your access to Christ. Oh, there is something that is preventing me from coming to Christ. There is something that is deterring my mind from from giving Christ all that He deserves in this world. Because if there is something that is deterring me from giving Christ all that He deserves, then there is something in this world that I love and desire more than Christ. Therefore, my love for this world is apparently stronger than my love for Christ. And I must quickly and swiftly let it go. Amen. Amen. Calvin goes on to say they should be like a person who wishes to do anything quickly and who shakes off heavy and inconvenient burdens from their shoulders so that they may pursue Christ. So, is it wrong to love my life? No. You have blessings that God has given you in your life. Is it wrong to to appreciate and to value them? No. It is not wrong. But you must have the mindset that you are a foreigner on a journey and you must be mindful that your home is heavenward. Amen. Calvin says this, and now this will be his last quote. The true way to love life, how do I love it then? Is when we remain in it as long as God pleases. And are prepared to change our home as soon as he tells us. Or, to put it in the word, when we, as it were, carry it into our hands. Carry it in our hands and offer it to God as a sacrifice. Can you imagine? God calls you home and you say, God, here is what I have to give to you. It is a life that was lived for your glory. It is a life that was spent sharing your word. It is a a life that was passionate for sharing the gospel with anyone and everyone that had ears to hear. Can you imagine presenting that kind of life to God? Can you imagine? Is that kind of life the life that you can present to God now? A life that says, Lord, I spent my life gospeling and discipling and loving my wife and loving my children. Don't you want to present that life to God? Yes. And it is when we live that kind of life that we are anxious to go home to give to Him what He has given to us. A life that produced fruit because of death that He allowed us to experience. Whoever is too attached to this present life loses his life. That is, he throws it to everlasting ruin for to lose does not mean to abandon or to suffer loss of something valuable, but to give it over to destruction. So when you lose. You don't just lose your life is destroyed. What has a hold of you here, brothers and sisters? What do you grasp so tightly that you're not willing to let go of? Isn't it interesting that those who love this life in this world are so bound by the world that they make foolish decisions that deprive them from heavenly life? While those who treat this world as though they were merely guests, they are the ones who pass from eternal life. The true residence that they were meant for. J.C. Ryle says the meaning is plain. He who loves his life or thinks more of his life now than that than that life which is to come, shall lose the best part of his life. Listen. Their soul. But he who hates his life or cares little for it compared to the life that is to come, that person shall be preserved for eternal glory. That which the soul shall enjoy forever. Christ will not be the only one to lose his life. He calls all to follow and all those who belong to him to answer the call and to pay the cost of forsaking this world and all that we expect, all that we desire from it. Why? Because there is someone greater. We have found a greater treasure, one that cannot be compared to anything in this world. Christ, in effect, turns his disciples into those who have ears to hear, And he says, this hour, my hour, it's not just mine. It will soon be yours. You want to follow Christ? You want to call yourself a Christian? You want to identify yourself with Christ? Then will you follow him? Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Listen to this in closing. Where are you? Willing to follow Jesus too. How far will you follow him? Is there a point in following Jesus that you will not go? Is there a a, a line that you will not cross when it comes to following Jesus? Jesus says, where I am, there will be my servant also. Christ, where is he going? He's going to the cross to die. Will you, who call yourself a disciple of Christ, follow him to the cross? Yeah. Would you? Yeah. Will you forsake this life and all the pleasures that this world attempts to, to lure you into so that they can lure you away from Christ? Will you follow him to the cross or will you be lured away by the pleasures of this world? And don't be deceived, brothers and sisters into thinking that we preachers mean sex, drugs, and rock and roll as the only things that lure you away from Christ. That's right. No, we mean far more dangerous vices. We mean those things for Christians who claim the name of Christ, but week after week they disobey, they, they disobey the command to love their neighbor. We mean those vices that week after week We who call ourselves Christians forsake the local assembling of the body of Christ and see it as no big deal. We who week after week dishonor the Lord's day because there's a sale that we got to take advantage of or a meal that we got to get started really early. Oh, it's much more than sex, drugs and rock and roll. There's a deception going on among those who believe that they're believers, but yet. Do not honor the Lord on his day that he's called his people to worship. Who call themselves Christians, who name the name of Christ and yet gossip more about their neighbor than the unsaved person does. Who are more addicted to the things of the world that are are in our vision, pornography, than people who don't even name the name of Christ. Christ. Oh, there is a dangerous deception going on that you merely need to call yourself a Christian, but not live and follow Christ as a Christian. Book of First John. Those who claim to love Christ must walk as Jesus walked. And will you follow in his footsteps? Dear friends, don't think that I'm speaking in legalistic terms or legalistic talk this morning. Because if Christ was here speaking to you, you would beg for me to come back and preach. If Paul was here speaking to you this morning, you would stop your ears as they did when Stephen began to preach and cry out for no more. No, we need to hear this. Let us not be comfortable in thinking that because we say I'm a Christian, that we're literally following in the footsteps of Christ and pursuing him to the cross. No, let us live a life that says my life is no longer my life. That when people from the world call and look for a Philip or for an Arnold, you can say with confidence, Philip, sir, is dead. Praise God. And each of you have different stories that you've been sharing with me. Brother Mark shared with me that Doreen was not the only one who gave to his to their family the gift of the gospel that he also gave to them the gift of the gospel and had all of his children and grandchildren gather around as he shared with them the death, life, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and repenting for sin and salvation. Praise God. That is just a few of the the testimonies that I've been receiving from people who are sharing the gospel, who are living a different life, who are following Christ with all of their heart. And I could go to each and every one of you and you could give me examples of how God is doing a work in you. Because those who he has called come and they bear the cross saying, my life is no longer my own. own. I am dead to the world and the world is dead to me. How far are you willing to follow Christ? Let me finish with this. And what is the reward? If anyone serves me, the father, Jesus says, will honor him. This is the reward. The Father shall give to those who love Christ. The Father shall give to those who serve Christ. I can tell you that the honor that the Father will give is such that no eye has seen, is such that no ear has heard. How can we even begin to describe the crown that will be placed on our head and the words of well done, good and faithful? How can we begin to explain the great riches and reward that God will give us simply For serving Him. And He's the one who saved us. It is no wonder that we will cast down our golden crowns and say to you and to you alone, be honor and praise and glory. Can you imagine rewards from God just for serving Him? How can we speak of the streets of gold? How can we speak of the marriage supper of the Lamb? They are beyond our imagination. You may not be honored among men in this world. They may never know your name. You may never see your name in shimmering lights, nor may you ever be rewarded for your good and hard and decent work. Oh, but those who have been called by Christ, those who are his own, those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, repented and trusted in Christ for their salvation and have followed him with all their hearts and lived their lives for the sake of knowing Christ. You are known by God. The men of the world may not know you, but God knows you. The men of this world may never reward you, but God will reward you. The men of this world will never honor you, but the Bible says that God will honor the one who follows Christ. Oh, look forward to that. Strive toward that. Race toward that. Because in the end, dear brothers and sisters... That's all that matters. This is the direction that Christ is pointing his disciples toward. He is discouraging their earthly carnal expectation and pointing them to a heavenly place that he is calling you to. They must follow in his steps if they are his true servants. And if they are his true servants, they will find at that starting point a cross that they must carry until Christ calls them home. What about you this morning? Are you willing to release your grips on this world in order to take hold of what Christ has for those whom he has called? And for those who have such a desire, he is calling you toward himself and heavenward to be glorified with him. He alone could give us life and he alone Is our atonement for our sin. And he calls you. To repent and believe this morning. Will you follow him? Will you die? Or will you lock away your life? Hoping to preserve it. My dear friends. If you attempt to save your life. You will lose it. But if you lose your life. For the sake of Christ. You will find it. It is only found in Christ. This morning, as we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate that life that Christ has laid down so that we might live. I invite all of the members of the body of Christ who are in right standing with their church to come and to celebrate the life of Christ. That our lives now are hidden in his life. Let's stand Our Lord and our God, we do come before you and we do praise you for your grace and for your mercy and for the life that you were not clinging to, whether in heaven or here on earth. But you joyfully came from heaven to earth and you joyfully on earth laid down your life so that you could once again return to your glory. Lord, you have accomplished Redemption for those whom you have called by name. You have secured our salvation. And we celebrate you this morning. And we celebrate that in following you and pursuing you in dying, Lord, in hating life. That we will one day know what true life is all about. And no, we do not need to wait for heaven in order to experience that. Lord, when you called us and regenerated us, that life began at that moment. That we even now know what life is all about because you have given us life. We celebrate you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.